All right. Well, good morning. Sure. Great to see you again. And uh, I look forward to catching up with you to find out what's been going on with you. And several of you have been kind enough to ask what's been going on with me. And so I've given you a little updates along the way and uh, we'll do more so. Um, last week, just kind of as a re-entry point for me, I uh, gave you an opportunity to ask some questions that might be on your mind uh, during my absence or uh, that you'd like for me to speak to briefly this morning. And so uh, I haven't been able to uh, review all of these uh, this morning, but I, I thought I'd share two or three of them with you. Uh, just because I found them interesting and a little funny and so on like that. Somebody asked, what did God tell you about the direction of Meadowbrook? And are we thinking about planting a church? Uh, well, honestly, I didn't go asking God for direction about Meadowbrook. So uh, the difference in my taking a personal retreat, which I do sometimes, and I'm all about seeking God about the church and seeking God about my life and so on, uh, sabbatical is a little bit more of a reconnect, renewing with God on a personal level. So I did a number of uh, spiritual exercises, if you will, and reading and writing and so on like that, and uh, didn't seek him so much about you and the direction of this church. Uh, I will spend a little more time this summer doing that. Um, but the question was kind of asked in light of a number of uh, things that have taken place lately within the uh, denomination that we participate in. Most of you know that we participate with Southern Baptist and with Northwest Baptist. And there is a big, big emphasis out now about church planting. And uh, just because that whole thing is happening hasn't particularly influenced us about that. We've always been concerned about church planting. We've had four uh, endeavors uh, to that end in the past. Uh, it's a regular part of the conversation with uh, elders, and so uh, uh, we'll trust that we'll continue to pray together and seek the Lord together about when that next opportunity is that we will plant a church. Somebody said, what's with the modeling on your sabbatical at the beach? My modeling? That had reference to uh, a picture that I put on Facebook because I had one particularly great day at the beach. And so I thought uh, I would share with my friends my perspective, my view of the beach. Uh, some of you wondered, is that Sherry laying down there? And no, it wasn't. Just some random woman that uh, I didn't even notice she was there. And uh, somebody else said, so are you wearing a toe ring now? And I can assure you, no, I am not. And never plan to. Uh, unless they tie one to it when I die or whatever. But um, all right. Somebody said, how do you think God wants Meadowbrook to be in relationship with other churches, particularly those with differing and opposing doctrines? Well, uh, we have had a long time uh, relationship with uh, a lot of churches in our area and some of, of whom we are very much in alignment in beliefs and practices and some of whom we're very different. Uh, the current effort that we have right now with our blood drive, and hopefully uh, you signed up and you're going to be donating this Wednesday or is it Tuesday, Wednesday, when, Wednesday, whichever day it is, 27th, I think. Um, 
But those churches that we partner with in Redmond for the blood drive, they are very different from us, both in uh, theology and ecclesiology. Uh, but it's an opportunity for us to join together, serve our community, make a difference uh, in the lives of some people with blood donations. Uh, so kind of like what God said to the Hebrews as they were in Babylon through Jeremiah, seek the welfare of the city, seek to bless the city. You're going to be there for a while and uh, call upon me to do things that bless the city. And so we partner with other churches. We partner with other organizations to that end to bless the city. There are some churches, though, that we have a lot of alignment with in belief and practice. And uh, I, I meet with them monthly, and we pray for the city, and we pray about the gospel and the expanse of the gospel and hearts being drawn to Christ. And so uh, there's multiple levels, um, layers, if you will, to our relationships with the other, other churches like that. Somebody said, how many Krispy Kreme donuts did you have on your sabbatical? I did count. It was six. Okay. <laughs> Now, I'm gone six weeks, so okay. And no, they didn't happen one a week. But anyway, that uh, in, while we were in Florida, there was a Krispy Kreme really close to where we stayed. So anyway, thanks for asking. Somebody uh, wanted to know, did you feel called to start writing a book and where is it taking you? I have felt stirred about writing a book for a long time. And uh, I felt over this sabbatical that God was giving me opportunity to do some of that. And so um, I have written uh, a little over five chapters. And uh, it's around the subject of how God meets with us, interfaces with us in hard times. Um, as it's turned out, there's so much personal story in there. It's more of a memoir now. And... Um, I'm, I'm almost wondering if I'll ever let anybody read it. So it's become that, that personal. So uh, if you think about that from time to time and want to say a prayer for me, I'd appreciate that. But where it's been taking me is um, greater levels of gratitude for how God has been there for me and for some of you and others in hard times and difficult times. Um, so I come back to you with... Uh, uh, if you want to think about the heart as a dashboard and all those uh, little needles get over on the empty side or over on the full side, all the needles about gratitude and hope and peace and joy and love and so on, those have been moving toward the full side uh, because of this writing that I've been doing. Somebody said, how do you heal uh, a damaged relationship? Well, there's a lot of things to say about that, and yeah, I could actually do a whole series on that. Uh, if you're the one that asked that question and you've got a specific scenario playing out in your life right now, let me just say, drop me an email or give me a call. Let's talk about it um, so that you don't have to wait until I address it on Sundays. And then somebody uh, commented, followers of Jesus used to change the world. What happened? How do we get back to changing the world? And, of course, we don't want to be um, offline uh, to such a point to say Christians are not impacting and changing the world anymore. Uh, it's incredible what's happening all over the world with the Christian gospel and mission. 
the place where it seems to be lagging and suffering a bit is in North America and in the United States. Uh, but I think it's a great question. It's something that uh, stirs in my head and my heart all the time. Uh, and as a matter of fact, it's something that had been stirring with me about today. And so that's where I want to go for these moments. And I want us to think together, what's it look like for Christians that make a difference? How do we be a people who make a difference? Not just have connection with God and salvation. We know where we're going someday when we die and all that. But how do we make a difference while we're in the here and now? So with that set up, let me dive in. Uh, and I'll back up because I've been doing a lot of reflection over these weeks. Uh, much of my perspective on the Christian life comes out of the way that I was raised uh, as it is for you. And uh, I came to Christ at the age of 15. And so throughout my high school years and college years, I was a member of a couple of different local churches. Um, and it seemed like in my tradition that I grew up in, and a lot of the experience that I was observing as a youth and a young adult was we primarily identified ourselves by what we were against. Maybe you come from a tradition that did something similar. Who, who are believers? Well, they're, in my tradition, they were the ones that were against drinking and smoking and dancing and R-rated movies and mixed bathing. It took me a while to figure out what that was. Um, and we were against the ERA, and we were against a variety of companies that bought advertising on television shows that were destructive to the culture. And so we boycotted companies and boy, boycotted products. And uh, there was a season where we boycotted uh, Disney. And I could go on and on and on about it. But that's kind of how we were identifying ourselves. And that's pretty much the way the world was looking at us. Christians are those people who are against stuff. Who have this real narrow. And, and let me hasten to say, uh, it's not like I disagreed with a lot of what the church was taking a stand about. And um, that they were trying to discourage sinful, destructive, hurtful kinds of things taking place. I'm, I'm in agreement with most of it. Um, but I sometimes wondered, is that the best way to address uh, some of these very complex and deeply rooted things in our culture? And as a matter of fact, when you begin to look more and more at the scriptures... And you see, now, who are the people that were always railing against the culture and calling down the culture and kind of pointing the finger at the culture? Who were those people? And they were the Pharisees. And when you look at Jesus and when you look at Paul, they kind of approach that whole thing differently. Did they have the same kind of stand against some of these things? Absolutely. But they approached it differently. And what you find is that what we were kind of doing in my tradition is we were basically saying to you over there, if you become like us, you can join us. Now, as long as you're going to vote for the wrong candidates and stand beside the wrong policies and practice the wrong behaviors, you just go ahead and stay over there. But when you become like us, then you can join us. And what we, in essence, were doing, we were making a point, a very important point, 
but we weren't making a difference. And there's a huge difference between making a point and making a difference. In fact, it's easier to make a point than it is to make a difference. Making a point is quick. Making a point is succinct. It's clean. It happens uh, almost instantaneously. Making a difference takes a long time. It's very messy. You have to get neck deep into a lot of issues and relationships. It takes a long view toward making a difference. And I think that's kind of where the early church was. When you go back and you look at the early church, you see that within 300 years after the founding of the church, around the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, within 300 years, the early church toppled the ideology and the religion of Rome. Now, that is remarkable. You think America is a superpower today and has a significant influence on the globe today. Uh, you can multiply that a few times to the presence and the power and the influence that Rome had in its day. And yet Christianity came along and within 300 years toppled its ideology, toppled its religion. And that religion had been in place for about 2,000 years. And they did so without any influence. They didn't have a platform. They had no money. A bunch of poor people. They had little of anything with which to leverage for change and to leverage for making a difference. And so what happened? How did that take place? How did they get to that point? Well, that's what I want to examine with you for these next few minutes. And we want to think about Jesus and Paul, especially, as to how they addressed the scenarios and the culture of their day. And the first thing that you see, and, and by the way, um, these next five things that I want to mention to you I've gleaned from Andy Stanley. I think they were so helpful to me I want to share them with you. He, he points out they leaned relationally in the direction of those that they dis disagreed with most. Now, it's not like they compromised themselves, but relationally they leaned in that direction in order to make a connection, in order to build a relational bridge. Now, most of you are familiar with the story that's recorded in Acts 17. And this is when Paul had traveled to Greece and he found himself in the great ancient city of Athens. And if you remember a little bit about Athens in its glory days, um, it was a world leader in intellect, in culture, in philosophy, in uh, theology, in every uh, way that you want to measure uh, a city uh, and its influence. And Paul found himself in Athens, and he is just, you know, uh, awed by the number of gods, little g-o-d-s, that are all over the city. They have statues to every kind of entity that you can imagine that they had deified and made a god out of. Now, Paul was raised a good Jew. He had been trained by the leading rabbi of his day, and now he's a leading Christian. There's nobody uh, that is 
out there further with the development of theology and missiology than Paul. Right. So he's in Athens and he is surrounded by all of these idols. Any good Jew, any good Christian would be against idols. Right. Because we are monotheistic, exclusive toward Yahweh God. But Paul doesn't come into town and rail against and preach against idols. Was he against idols? Absolutely. He wrote extensively about it. But rather than come in and rail against idolatry, Paul comes into the city. He sees all this plethora of gods. And then he even finds this one platform that's missing a statue to the god. And the inscription says to the unknown god. These Athenians were so concerned that they not overlook and insult one of the gods, they even had a place for the one they might have missed. Just in case he showed up someday, right? And he was like, what's this? And they were like, well, we just didn't know your name, but now we know. We've already got the platform here for you. And so Paul goes to that one, and he begins to engage some of the Athenians that are around him. He says, I can tell you guys are very religious people. I'm a religious guy, too, making common ground. Now, were their religious interests and affiliations different? Vastly so. But he starts immediately building relational bridges. I can tell you're religious. I'm pretty religious, too. I can tell that paying attention to all the gods is very important to you. I want to tell you about the one God that's unknown to you. How brilliant is that? And so he starts to talk to them about Jesus. And Jesus is a God who has been among us. He has been with us and died an atoning death by way of crucifixion and did not stay in the grave but rose again. Now, this was a scandalous message to the sophisticated Athenians. A lot of them scoffed at it, but some of them said, I'm coming back and I want to hear what you have to say about this tomorrow. And God began to reach a group of people that became a church and that began to make a difference across that city. They leaned relationally in the direction of those that they disagreed with most. The second observation is that they were similar in theology with the Pharisees, but vastly different in approach. Now, if you were to sit Jesus and Paul down in a circle with a bunch of Pharisees to talk theology, they would have virtually been on the same page at every point. They believed in one God. They believed he was creator God. They believed that he was supreme in power, that he's the only God, uh, that he holds all wisdom, that he is a a great benefactor and wants to bless people, etc. So they would have been in agreement with almost every point of theology. But they were vastly different in their approach and how they would live out their faith. A third thing that you notice is that they were not concerned. Jesus and Paul were not concerned about guilt by association. Now, parents, this is not a parental piece of wisdom for you. It matters who your kids hang out with and who their friends are and and who's influencing them and so on. But with respect to Jesus and Paul, with respect to mature believers who are on mission for Christ, they were not concerned about guilt by association. Jesus is hanging out with tax collectors. We don't get how scandalous that is today because in our world, that's just another guy in another profession who's just doing his job and we all pay taxes and blah, blah, blah. But this was like 
If you were a friend with a tax collector in those days, it was like you had betrayed your people and you were a a secret presence for Rome within your community and that you bought into the whole idea of ripping people off and thievery and so on like that. And so as a Pharisee would look at it, you were guilty by associating with people who did certain things that were sinful, like tax gatherers, like prostitutes. How can you hang out with those people and, and whatever number of other kinds of sinners that uh, Jesus and Paul hung out with all the time? Now, what's interesting is that, uh, you know, when the time came that um, it was time for Jesus to go to the cross, the Pharisees had so gotten sideways with Jesus about his approach They decided he had to die. Right? That's how vastly different and controversial the approach thing is. And so they orchestrated this whole uh, mockery of a trial thing. They went and arrested him. They beat him. They slapped him around. They spit upon him. They mocked him. They brought in false witnesses to testify against him. Right? And then they take him to Pilate. To basically ask Pilate to do what they didn't legally have the right to do, and that is killing. And in John 18, when they get to Pilate's palace and they make their case for Pilate, he goes, okay, okay, come on in and let's talk about it. And they're like, oh, we can't come in. That would defile us to go into the place of a Roman. Friends, I think they'd already defiled themselves when they started slapping and spitting upon Jesus. But the uh, break in their being able to perceive these things was so great, they couldn't understand how this over here could defile them and this over here would not. They were concerned about guilt by association. After Jesus was resurrected, ascended, went back to heaven. The church was launched. The mission began to be uh, launched across uh, the the known world of that day. Of course, Paul is way out there with reaching out to the non-Jewish, to the Gentiles. Peter did some of that too. And uh, you remember in Acts 10, the whole Cornelius story? And how God uh, brought that centurion and his whole household to faith. And there were a number of little scenarios that were playing out with Peter with the non-Jewish. And, of course, if you come out of that Jewish community where there's guilt by association, you're kind of nervous about how everybody else is feeling over your behavior of hanging out with the non-Jewish. And so Peter began to continue his ministry to the non-Jews, to the Gentiles, to the sinners and whatever. But he didn't let the believers and the Jewish people know that. So it was kind of like doing it on the sly and in secret. And in Galatians chapter 2, Paul tells us he saw Peter doing this and called Peter on that and said, man, you're being a hypocrite. Stop it. Be open and out front with the fact that you're hanging out with sinners. A fourth observation is that Jesus and Paul in that early church refused to be dragged into debates that distracted them from the primary issue. Now, there are a lot of issues that are before us today. 
Does it matter what Christians think about the national debt? Does it matter what Christians think about taxes, about health care, Medicaid, Medicare, uh, about national defense and all these kinds of things? Of course it matters. But what we see from Jesus and Paul is that they would not be dragged into. They had opinions. They had convictions. They had biblically based positions. But they would not allow themselves to be dragged into debates that would take them off of the main issue of their mission. Now, you remember uh, one occasion where a bunch of uh, legalists came up to Jesus and said, Hey, so what about this taxation thing? Should we be paying taxes? Now, this was a trick question. Because if he says yes, then he's a friend of Rome. And if he says no, then he's an insurrectionist. They report him to the Romans and he gets arrested. And so you know how the story goes. Jesus says, somebody give me a coin. And they pull out a coin. He looks at it and he goes, whose inscription's on the coin? And they said, well, that's Caesar. And he said, well, then, brilliantly, give to Caesar what is Caesar's. Give to God what is God's. He would not get into that debate. And then you'll remember another time the legalists came up to him. And they're puzzled. How do you say what you say and do what you do? Who gives you the authority to do that? Where does your authority come from? Who was your rabbi? Where did you get your degrees? How come you don't have any letters after your name, etc., etc.? And Jesus said, you know what? I'll answer that question if you answer my question. By whose authority did John baptize? You remember John the Baptist, who had this whole baptism of repentance out in the Jordan River, calling people to ready their heart for the coming of the Christ, etc. And so they go, hold, hold on, we'll get back with you. And they go over and they confer with one another and they go, you know what? If we say that John was of God, then he and everyone else will say, well, then why didn't you get baptized? And if we say that John was not of God, John, who is this larger than life folk hero, the people might even stone us for not being on the side of John. And so they come back and they say to Jesus, uh, about John, we don't know. And so Jesus said, then I'm not going to answer your question either. The point being this, friends, there are times when you do not engage the debate. You don't get into it. Depending on who the people are. What the setting or the situation is and what the timing of all that is. A fifth thing. Jesus and Paul in that early church didn't judge non-Christians for behaving like non-Christians. Has this ever been curious to you that we would rail on people for doing this, that or the other? When they've got no good reason not to do those things. They don't have an indwelling spirit of God that checks their heart and convicts their heart and says, no, don't go there. They're left to whatever seems right to them. The Bible calls that flesh. Of course, non-Christians will do non-Christian things. Will, will act in sinful, broken, busted ways. In fact... Paul says in 1 Corinthians 5, he goes, in the middle of this kind of discussion, what have I to do with judging 
those who are outsiders. Those who have yet to come to Christ, who have yet to give their allegiance to God, who have yet to be transformed by His indwelling presence, what have I to do with judging them? The Bible is very clear. We don't judge people outside of the faith. Now, just parenthetically, let me hasten to say, for those of you that think we shouldn't be judging inside the faith, we should. And there's another whole teaching with another whole set of passages. But we are to judge ourselves within the faith. That's one of our disciplines. That's one of our covenant agreements with one another, that we will discern what's going on with one another. And we will correct one another and reprove one another and and, uh, confront one another, all those kinds of things. That's another talk for another day. But we don't do that with those outside the faith. What do we do with those outside the faith? Here's what Jesus said. Matthew chapter 5, verses 14 and following. He says, you, my followers, Christians, are the light of the world. This world is a dark place. There's dark stuff happening all the time. There's no good reason for people in darkness to be able to see what they're doing or what this is all about. So you are light to them. You help them see. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Now, one of the things that uh, I had happen on one night that I was gone on my sabbatical is I had the opportunity to go outside of a large city, climb up a, a large hill. It was near midnight. Maybe not the best time to do it. But as I got to the, the summit of it, I was able to look at the whole valley, the whole city below. Oh, my goodness. It was gorgeous. But the fact of the matter is, you couldn't mistake. I could look one way where it was vast darkness. I knew I was looking at the desert outside of Phoenix. But on the other side, I'm looking down into this valley and across this expanse that you know are the suburbs and ultimately the city of Phoenix. Why? Because a city can't be hidden. It can't be hidden. You can't miss it. When the light's on. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand so that it gives light to all that are in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others. Why? So that they may see your good, what? Theology? Doctrine? Convictions? So that they may see your good works. You know, I thought we weren't supposed to, like, draw attention to ourselves and, uh, you know, have pride and be ostentatious and all. That's not what we're talking about. We're just talking about as you serve God and serve people and do good works, you do that in a way that people can see it. Not so that they think you're great. What's the next line say? So that they may give glory to your Father who is in heaven. So they, they look at what you're doing how you're serving this group of people or making a difference in that that group of people. And they're going, why in the world are you doing that? My God. Tell me more about your God. Matthew 5, 17 goes on to say, so don't think that I've come to abolish the law of the prophets. So he knew what his crowd was thinking. So he's saying, you're light. You're salt. Make a difference. And those that were listening We're thinking, yeah, but what about doctrine? What about beliefs? What about convictions? What about truth? 
All those things matter. Absolutely matter. Don't think that I've come to abolish the law of the prophets. I've not come to abolish them. I've come to fulfill them. Well, then I'm confused, Jesus. How does this take place? How do we stay true to the truth and do good works and make a difference? Well, enter Paul. And Paul exhorts us and teaches us. He says, when it comes to outsiders, this is Colossians chapter 4, verse 5. When it comes to outsiders, be wise. Make the most of every opportunity you have with outsiders. Now, notice the language. Don't, you know, take hold of an occasional opportunity. Make the most. Seize every opportunity you can to wisely impact, influence, make a difference with outsiders. He goes on to say, Here's how you do that. Let your conversation be always. How often is always? Always full of grace. Now, what's full? You look that up in the Greek language and full means full. All the way up. You know, uh, sometimes I go with a couple of you over to a coffee shop over here and get a latte. And when I do, man, they, they never fail to fill that so full to the brim, I can barely walk to my table without spilling it. That's full. It's almost too much grace flowing out of your life. That's full. Seasoned with salt. So that you may know how to answer everyone. Now, notice that formula. Grace, 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 seasoned with salt. Now, out of my tradition that I grew up with, salt, 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 salt. And if you become like us, Jesus will save you. Grace, 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 grace. You see how inverted? Be full of grace, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer everyone. Now, let's go back. And I'm just about to wrap up, so if you're dying to get out to the sunshine, we're almost there. But let's go back in history. That early church was doing what Jesus and Paul were doing. Now, in the time of Marcus Aurelius, second century, uh, it was a devastating time with plagues. Plagues were everywhere. People were dying everywhere. And here's what was going on in that day for Christians. In whatever city, uh, pagan families who had a family member get the plague, they put their family member out on the street because they didn't want to catch the plague. Or they would abandon their family members and they would leave the city and leave them there to die in their disease and in their sickness. Not so with the Christians. Some historians say one of the major contributing factors to Christianity overwhelming the Roman Empire is the way they handled this plague. 
When this plague began to beset all these cities, Christians stayed in the cities. They cared for their sick family members and in many cases nurtured them back to health and went out to the streets to those who had been abandoned in the streets. Pagans, non-believers, cared for, nurtured them or went into the homes of those who had been abandoned and their families had fled the city and cared and nurtured them, many of whom survived the plague. And by that act of benevolence, by that act of compassion, Waves of people began to come to Christ. So much so that by the time you get to Constantine in the 4th century, the Roman Empire has become Christian. Constantine had become a Christian. Now there's a lot of historical debate about to what degree all of that happened and was legitimate, etc. But nevertheless, it was very pervasive. And notice what happened two emperors later when we get to a guy by the name of Julian. Uh, Julian was also known as Julian the Apostate. He was not a believer. He was a pagan, and he thought Rome had took a wrong turn under Constantine to become Christian. And so it was one of his purposes to take Rome back to her former days of paganism. He reinstituted the plethora of gods. He reinstituted a priesthood for those gods. He tried to suppress Christianity, and he could not get traction with his efforts. How come he couldn't get traction? He's like the top dog. He's the one that's got all the power. He's got the platform. He's got all the influence. But he can't get traction with taking the, the empire from Christianity back to paganism. And he even writes a letter about this on one occasion. And here's, notice what his letter says as he's complaining about this whole scenario. He says, recent Christian growth is caused by their moral character. By the way they behave, by the way they conduct themselves, by the way they care for other people, by their compassion, by their generosity, by their benevolence. They have better homes and families and marriages. Uh, They're honest. They have integrity. They have had this growth because of their moral character, even if pretended. He goes, nobody's that good. I don't believe they're that good. They're pretending. But nevertheless, it's very effective. And many, many people continue to come into the Christian fold. By their benevolence toward strangers, outsiders. He continues, I think that when the poor happen to be neglected and overlooked by my priests, the priests that I had installed for the, you know, all the pantheon of, of gods, my priests missed the needs of a lot of poor people. And so when that happened, the impious Galileans, and that's how he referred to Christians, The impious Galileans observed this and they devoted themselves to benevolence. The impious Galileans support not only their own poor, but ours as well. Everyone can see that our people lack aid from us. So even a pagan emperor who's trying to diminish and undermine Christianity can see This is the difference making that Christians are able to accomplish. So, Rome became predominantly Christian because Christians were moral, honest, fair, just lived a better life. Because Christians were generous and benevolent. 
because Christians had better marriages and families, because Christians were concerned for others and served others. And so I ask, as I reflect on these things, how do you reflect on these things? Who will we be? Who will we be? Let's be a church that's not content to make a point. There are a lot of points we need to make, we will make, we've got to make. But let's not be content to make a point. Let's make a difference. And many of us already are. Uh, I've already talked about some of the partnerships that we have with other churches, partnerships that we have with other organizations. We're serving people in a variety of needy kinds of scenarios. Just this past Friday night, several of you uh, gathered uh, at Tent City to feed dinner and so on. Those are the kinds of things that we must be about as we're building relational bridges for the hope of being light and others can see and find Christ. You go, well, salvation comes by the hearing of the word and the the hearing of the word has to happen with the preaching of the word or the making of a point. That's true. What we're saying is we work the soil in such a way that when a word or a seed hits the soil, it can find deep root. That's what we're talking about. So, what will you do with what we've said? Will you build your life upon Christ? See, that's the light piece. People can see there's something distinctive about you. You don't build your life like everybody else builds their life. You're building your life on this guy that lived 2,000 years ago. What's that about? Will you build your life on him? Will you build relational bridges to others? I literally spend hours every week in bridge building to outsiders. Now, you are with outsiders hours every week. Are you bridge building for Christ? It's an intentional, strategic decision. Will you be light and salt? See, if you're not light and salt, if, you, if, if there's not something of Jesus in all of this, people just think, man, he's a great guy. Man, she's an awesome woman. It's the light and salt piece where we're sprinkling Jesus upon all the grace that's about our lives, that people have their hearts ignited about Jesus. Will you be benevolent with those that you don't like, you don't agree with? Can we be the most generous people around? Let's pray on these things. Father, we know that there is a reason that you put all this before us today in this gathering. You knew who would be here. You knew where we are in life's journey. You know the circumstances that 
occupy our thoughts and worry us. And yet you've sat down with us and talked to us about being a people that make a difference. God, we pray that the power of your spirit would do what only your spirit can do. And that's touch our heart in redemptive and transforming ways. Touch our thinking in heavenly, missional ways. Stir a holy discontent with status quo. And empower us to move forward in grace-filled ways. In Jesus' name and for His sake. Amen.